0: Get your library card now at tdm library the diversity movement You can't stop me. Nothing's gonna stand in my way. Nothing, nothing. nothing. I'm
1: gonna fly up. I'm gonna fly. Welcome to the Donald Thompson podcast. Uh, Today I have an opportunity to talk to Ryan Vett and uh, he's both a marketer and more importantly and more germane to this topic, a entrepreneur. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is how do you not only have an idea and a concept, but how do you transition that concept into something that's commercially viable? Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: One of the things that, uh, Ryan, we like to do as we kind of dive into the subject matter is let's just take a step back and talk to us a little bit about you, right? Where are you from? Where you grew up? uh, Brothers and sisters, a little bit about the family. And then we'll just talk as friends and kick it a little bit.
2: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I I have the uh, quintessential, probably non-exciting entrepreneurial journey. It did start with a lemonade stand. And and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but also very seriously, that lemonade stand I quickly realized as I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago that it could be more. And so I, I did some product diversification called the Daily Herald, which is the big newspaper in Chicago when I was about nine years old. And they said, yes, ma'am. And I was devastated. And so like any entrepreneur, right, when, when someone comes at you and, and they they put an obstacle in your path, you figure out a way around it. So instead of paying the, I think it was like twenty or $30,000 a day for a full color back page ad that I had requested, Uh, They, they decided, or I decided rather that I did not need to go with the local newspaper and I could do my own. So I started a newspaper for kids, uh, a whopping two issues and uh, went to about nine households. It did go to two states. Uh, I mailed it to the only friend I had in another state at the time. Uh, But I say all of that slightly in jest, but also seriously, because somehow one of those uh, nine printed copies with my parents, inkjet that they spent too much money on, ended up in a local business. And someone said, hey, you do design work. Could you do design work for me? They had no idea I was nine. And so over email, I I said, sure, I am totally capable of doing design work here in my qualifications. And so that's really how I got into graphic design and launched my first marketing business. So it is the quintessential entrepreneurial journey with an interesting
1: twist. That is awesome. So I want to unpack it a little bit. You know, for me, I started out in elementary school selling Jolly Ranchers getting a, you know, not just a little bag. I would go buy them uh, by the pound and then, and then sell them, you know, sell them for a quarter a piece. There's something about that entrepreneurial bug that Mm -hmm. can be identified early on. Where do you think that came from? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Is that something they taught in the home? Did you have a relative? Like where did that spark, right? That you could be your own boss come from?
2: That's a great question and something I, th- I think you're totally right on, buying the, the pound bag versus you know the, what, 12-ounce bag and, and selling them. My dad it was a pastor in Chicago. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Neither one of them super high-paying jobs at the time and living in the Chicagoland area, definitely not the dollar didn't go quite as far. And so they always said, you can have whatever you want, but you're going to have to work for it and they didn't ever limit anything from me or limit my ability to get something but they always encouraged me to pursue different and creative ways to get uh the different things I wanted so at the time it was a playstation I think it was like a ps1 or whatever came out I don't even remember and I I bought it and I ended up not using it which was a whole nother lesson that we can unpack another time but it was this idea of hey if you want it absolutely don't I'm not gonna tell you no, but you have to be creative. Here's what we're going to come with. And they told me how much they were willing to give and how I had to come up with the other. I think it was like $160.
1: I mean, that's really powerful because that links motivation, right, to that creative mindset to then that financial outcome. And I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, our society today a little bit, and and I will be a little pejorative, we went through a period in our country where everybody got a trophy, everybody got a ribbon. Right? And yeah. what you're describing is your parents gave you that unlimited freedom to dream aligned with right a work ethic that says you got to put your mind and your motivation and your work together, and then you can have what you want.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And there's a great book called Everyone Gets a Trophy. It uh, talks about marketing to millennials. I got into speaking about a decade ago now, and it was to a group of realtors about the topic of millennials because millennials weren't buying homes. And so fast forward uh, 10 years later, I wrote a book, Cracking the Millennial Code, talking about that very same thing. And it's talking about how sometimes you, you're faced with things in life and obviously generational cohorts are very much segmented in a group and, and not looking at the individual. But there, there is the reality that my generation, and I'll admit, I got honorable mentions for many things I probably didn't even deserve that for um, growing up, that we got a trophy. And, and so I unpack that a little bit more in the book.
1: I mean, that's fantastic. One of the things that I would like to to start out with, tell me something interesting about you that I wouldn't find on the Internet, on your LinkedIn profile, kind of that standard surfing. Tell me something fun and interesting about Ryan.
2: Yeah, so lemonade, I, I would say, was my my start in the beverage industry. I went to college and I needed to make some money because I was paying most of my way through college. I did have a little bit of financial aid and a little bit of help from my parents, but I know I had four years ahead of me and I chose a private institution uh, and so I had to make money and I decided to open a coffee shop in my dorm room. Uh, I saw a very interesting opportunity with my sweet mates to serve coffee at certain times. So I actually posted hours on our suite door and I ran a coffee shop. We had like 30 different drink options I had a little espresso machine that was like 89 bucks and I made that back in like two weeks and all cash business. And I did pay taxes on it. I always am a firm believer of giving to Caesar what is Caesars, uh, but did that and ran that out of my dorm room. Fast forward four years, I opened a coffee shop across from campus, but my, my real first coffee shop on Elon's campus was in my dorm room called cafe secreto meaning cafe secret in Italian.
1: That is awesome. Right? Like, uh, you know, we're diligent, paid your taxes, right? Did the right thing from that respect. But as most entrepreneurs, you don't mind living in a little bit of gray, right? As we, as we chase those, those ideas. And that, that is really, really powerful. When you think back in all the different twists and turns from your entrepreneurial journey, let's talk a little bit about lessons learned. What are some of the things that, that you learned along the way that you would share with emerging opportunities so they could get there a little faster?
2: I think the biggest thing is you're always in the business of people. Uh, so many businesses cut out people. They're trying to eliminate or use process to cut out people or, or whatever it might be. And there are some opportunities to streamline processes in business. And I'm not saying that that's bad. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that people are what are getting you and helping you move forward. And I did not know that at first. I did a lot of solopreneur type ventures early on. And then obviously added uh, co-founders and then teams later a- as my career advanced. But at the end of the day, the one thing that's never changed is people. You've got people that are your clients. You've got people that you're serving. And, and if you put people first and people before profits, you're always going to be more profitable. You look at many companies uh, right now, you think of Delta Airlines. In-, in the time that we're in today, Delta is doing things that many other companies are not doing and, and it's costing them money, but they're putting people first. And they're the ones that aren't canceling service routes because people are okay with their limited service, but the way they're doing it. Of course, all these companies have had bumps along the roads, but they put people first and you see a difference.
1: Uh man, that's powerful. Uh, those are great examples of brands that people recognize that are doing what you're describing. And I think that what's interesting about what you said is that putting people first is a personal choice. Some advice to entrepreneurs, right, may take more funding than I have, may take more knowledge than I have, right? The mindset you just described is a personal commitment to do business a certain way, build it into your culture. And I think that's really important. When you've grown companies and then moved from solo entrepreneurs and now driving into having employees and partners and different things, what are some of the ways that you look at who you work with so that you actually can maintain and grow that people-first mentality? How do you recruit?
2: That's a great question. I look to a lot of books I've read. A lot of them come out of Silicon Valley, and they talk about you're hiring the dream uh, the dream team, and uh, I think the best one is Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a, a Team. It's a fictional book based on non-fictional data, if that makes sense. Basically, what he does is Patrick Lencioni goes and unpacks this fictional startup on the west coast out of silicon valley and how they've hired this dream team but it's the the rock star marketer um and i'm spoiling it spoiler alert um but that that ends up causing the most dysfunction in the team because they they did have the accolades they did have all these things but they didn't fit culture so to answer your question that was a long long way to get back to your your question but culture is most important and every company has its own personality its own dna and it's important to hire to that there are similar companies that might have similar values, but aren't the same DNA. And so pulling that rock star person in company A to your company might not be that perfect fit. And so I would say the, the biggest thing I've found time and time again is hiring for culture almost always supersedes uh, hiring for qualifications. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the greatest learning lessons. I wouldn't say 100% of the time, but I'd probably say 98%.
1: I would be right there with you. And as I think back, as I was listening to your answer and some of the things that have worked well in companies that I've worked with and been a part of and things that have kind of crashed and burned, it has come back to that synergy and that culture with people. Yeah. Right. Because most times when you're running a business, you're talking to bright, smart people that can interview well, they've got cool things in their background. Right. You'd love to chat with them because they're just super interesting. Right. All yeah. of Right, but if they make you take a step back in terms of the synergy of the team, right? Super expensive.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I I have the opportunity to run a a couple of or own uh, a couple of coffee shop and uh, craft beverage lounges. This is what we call them: coffee, beer, wine, and whiskey. And one of the things there is, yes, you can have awesome bartenders, you can have awesome baristas, but if they don't fit the culture, everyone on the team's unhappy. And and the same thing is true in corporate America, but I think it's harder sometimes. It's more undercover to find it. And you have to kind of dig a little bit further. But in these situations where you've only got two or three baristas running running a shop and one doesn't fit, everybody on the team, even the late night shift, can be affected by the person that worked, not even at the same time because of how they cleaned, how they conducted themselves, how they interacted with customers.
1: No, that's really, really powerful. One of the things I can tell just by listening to you, your examples and different things, is it feels like you're an avid reader an avid consumer of knowledge, right? To try to improve. What are some of the foundational books, right? If somebody were to come to you for entrepreneurial advice, but even though you wanted to, you just didn't have time to help them, but you could point them in the right direction to some resources, right? Where would you point them?
2: I've got a whole laundry list of business books and they're great. And I could point them to Uh, the listeners today, but I do want to give an example of an author that called me on Wednesday uh, a couple days ago and personally called me because he found out it was my birthday and he knew I was a huge fan of his first book, which is probably a decade old now, um, but called me to say thank you for repping my book. His his name is Mark Sanborn. Uh, His book is called The Fred Factor and it talks about how a, a mailman went above and beyond to just exceed all expectations i have used this book in many of my consulting opportunities and many of my lectures across the country and globe as a reference point but then when when mr sanborn i've talked to him a couple times over the last decade but when he called me on my birthday because he knew it was a milestone birthday and i he i missed his call actually didn't know it was him called him back he missed me and then he called me back again and we talked for about 30 minutes it proved everything in his book. So I have to start off with saying the best book because of the freshness it is The Fred Factor. He's also got The Fred Factor 2.0 by Mark Sanborn and talks about caring for people, which is what we were just talking about a couple minutes ago. Beyond that, a lot of people try to figure out the entrepreneurial journey. How do you become the next Mark Zuckerberg or how do you become the next Bill Gates and all that? And there's books on that. I would say one of the most interesting books for me who has spent most of my career in software and I don't write a line of code, like I know you said in your, your last, one of your last episodes this season, <laughs> you don't write a line of code. I, I'm with you there. But it is uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And he, goes, he writes it himself, which is very impressive, because he wanted to be a journalism major, first of all, but then got into shoes. Uh, and he talks about the true grit and, and perseverance it takes to, to run a startup. And it's in a different industry than what a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to pursue today. But I highly recommend that book. And like I said, I've got about a dozen others there on my website. You can check out my my list of recommended books. But those two right now come to mind as we're talking today.
1: And you've got a couple different websites for different businesses. So share with me the website that we'd go to to get those list of books.
2: Yeah. So my personal website, RyanVet.com, R-Y-A-N-V-E-T. It's pretty simple. People try to add extra letters to VET because it's such a short name, but that's it three letters, V-E-T, go to that website. You can get all my recommendations on books and book reviews on my blog uh, linked from that website as well.
1: Oh, fantastic. No, that's great in terms of sources of information because I think with so much out there uh, where you're a fingertip away from opinions and perspectives on Google, one of the things that's been really important to me is to curate great sources of content from Mm -hmm. people that are going in a direction I'd like to go, right? Because there's just so much out there that it's hard to choose what to listen to, what to read, who who to trust.
2: And you hit on something so important. It's the, the direction you want to go. I mean, there are so many things, and I would say a lot of them are good, but they might not be good for you or your organization. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Figure out who you want to follow and pursue that line of thought.
1: So we've touched on some of the entrepreneurial past, some of your perspective. Talk to me about your career trajectory. Tell me a little bit about some of the jobs, some of the startups you've worked at, and take me through that—that that probably helped shape you—but will give us a little bit more detail in ter- terms of the background of your journey.
2: After my coffee shop, uh, which I don't consider my my dorm room startup, I did have your traditional dorm room startup, which was myself, the the marketing, sales, and design guy, coupled with a developer, and and we launched a a software startup that I risked all the money I'd saved for my future wife's engagement ring to get us out to a trade show in Vegas. We doubled the money, and no, it was not at the slots. It was actually uh, through one single sale to a university. And that was my first what I call traditional startup. I had a lot of lessons there from fundraising fails, not because people weren't willing to give us money because we were unwilling to give up equity, uh, which is a whole other story. Uh, So I, I did that, and then after that, I launched my first real coffee shop that I mentioned earlier across from the campus of Elon. Uh, so it was a legitimate business. Uh, you can still walk in there today, although it looks different. You, you have to walk in with masks today. Uh, so that was my uh, another business I had. And then I went to work for a company called Anutri Medical. It, it's a medical device startup. It's still around today. It's based out of the Triangle. Uh, a dentist by the name of Dr. Daniel Davidian in Raleigh founded this painless instant anesthetic. If you want a shot, you don't want it to hurt, and you want it to work fast, uh that's what Dr. Davidian figured out, had the opportunity to to help that brand from pre-510K approval for those of you in the medical device world, you know that's an ambiguous time, all the way through marketing and growing that to a multi-million dollar company. After that time, uh there was just a, a lull in that that industry. And I was open to new opportunities, and I had an opportunity to jump to what I consider a sister company, a a similar investor profile, and hop on over to NetSertive, which is a marketing company in in the triangle, great digital marketing company. And so I worked with them for a period of time. And then in that time, I I was getting restless, as an entrepreneur does. We don't always make the best employees. and, And I was looking for the next opportunity. And I had this idea for the gig economy. Uh, in the back of my head, I'd seen Uber, I'd seen Lyft, I'd seen all of these companies boil up from from nothing to something. And I said, there's so much opportunity in the gig economy, but it's just not replicable. You've got Uber, you've got Lyft, you've got all the other companies, BlackLand and everything else that's failed. How does someone start their gig economy without several million dollars? Because it costs a lot of money to balance the marketplace, costs a lot of money to build the tech. So I started uh, in dental, which was familiar to me both from my time at Nutramedical, as well as my wife being a dentist. I had the opportunity to launch a podcast in the space, do a lot of writing in the space, speaking in the space, and being a keynote speaker at a lot of national meetings. And so I was like, I can start in dental. This is an industry right for picking. Found out it's about a forty billion dollar a year industry when it comes to dental staffing. I was like, okay, that's a decent market size to play in. So I launched Boone. And going back to our earlier conversation. Uh, about people. I wanted to launch a company with a mission that was all about the people that we serve. And so, Boon is an old English word, and it took me the longest part of this company was actually finding the name. And it's an old English word that means doing something good or beneficial. And, and so, that's why we picked the name. You know, Bon, Bueno, Bonicio, depending on what languages you know, but it's all the same root Latin word. And I decided to, to use that as, as the name to build this company that's this idea of practicing good. And it's not good grammar, but it's this idea of dentists are practicing, medical professionals are practicing, they're doing something every day, and we want to help them do it well or good to go along with our name. So we launched Boone uh, in 2018 as a software platform, allowed signups in late 2019, and started getting traction growing about 30% a month by late 20, literally last month of 2019, December last year, up through 2020, and then all of a sudden COVID hit and dental practices were closed down everything else and our, our revenue went to zero mm. and so i said well this was never this was never about the money first of all and, and this was never just about one industry we built a platform that was scalable to literally any industry and it was the idea of empowering people to work when they were able and how they wanted to and so we very quickly took our gig economy or marketplace platform and scaled it to about a dozen other industries during covid and so we are no longer, even if you look online, it's like the marketing agency uh, fallacy. If you, you're a marketing agency, your website's usually the worst because you've updated everyone else's first. That's like us. We're still a dental website if you go to uh, doingboon.com, but we have entered into law, commercial cleaning, residential cleaning, cooking, pr- personal service cooking, coffee roasting, wine subscriptions, and everything else because we're matching customers on demand with a need. And matching them with the best person possible. So we've we've made some major major uh, pivots during during COVID and this time, uh, but it's gone to fulfill our mission of practicing good and helping people get access to things that they otherwise wouldn't, including our, our some of the people on our platform that are working getting access to to capital or cash that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get.
1: Man, that is powerful one of the things that everyone is struggling with, right? It's, you know, you think about the age of COVID, right? We got some racial, unjust and societal issues that we're dealing with. So this is a time in our country and our society that chaos is kind of the norm, right? And there are businesses that are ebbing and flowing and you describe growth, 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 hard stop, right? Oh, yeah. Talk to me about, you talked to us about the pivot. Talk to me about the emotional mindset Right of how to think through that, stay enthusiastic, and figure out that next thing to do.
2: Yeah. So I was on a plane on on March fifth or sixth. I'll have to go fact check my dates, but whatever that uh, Thursday was, and the plane was full. I was speaking at a conference in San Francisco the next morning. Had a book signing. Got on the plane that afternoon. Uh, so I was on the ground for less than twenty four hours. It was about twenty hours. The plane was empty on the way back. This was a week before the government in any state had talked about COVID. And, and it was just a reality check for me that, okay, something big is coming down the pike. So immediately we turned around at Boone and said, hey, uh, for all of our dental professionals that are going into offices, here's the, the criteria you're going to need to face going into this week and then give it three days. And the government, uh, both federal and local, start imposing new restrictions on just everything that we did, our, our way of life. And so that little pivot that I thought was, okay, I'm I'm ahead of the curve. We're doing something good. We're practicing good, right? All of a sudden became ancient history and we had to really pivot. So it wasn't just doing something a little bit better by putting out a good email and telling people safety precautions. It was our whole world's changing. And we did not pivot right away. We I wouldn't say we wallowed, but we were scratching our heads like, oh, this will be a week. This will be two weeks. This will be three weeks. And by about the three week mark, I was like, no, if we don't pivot, we're done. And so we decided around week three, which was about the uh, a little before original tax day. So a little before April 15th this year. And I call that OG tax day because, you know, July 15th was our our new tax day. But uh, a little before then, we decided to really take our company in a different direction. And we'd already built it to be able to scale into any industry, but we hadn't tested it. I said, it doesn't matter. We've got to go because there's companies that there's people that aren't able to collect unemployment because they haven't been at their companies long enough. There's people that need to work to pay their mortgage, all of these different things. So, so we pivoted quickly and said, hey, we're open to any industry. And we almost opened, I hate to say a VC fund because it wasn't that, but we said, we've got you know several hundred thousand dollars of technology. We can invest into any two-sided marketplace, whether that's gig economy or marketplace like an Etsy or eBay. We said, we're going to start investing our tech into these companies to help them help people, which goes along with our mission of practicing good. So mid April, we started doing that. Uh, we were able to approve five companies into our, what we call our first cohort. And we've totally transitioned our mission to helping uh, two sided, three sided, four sided marketplaces grow and scale to give people the ability to work on their own terms and with what they're comfortable with.
1: Man, that's, that's powerful um, both in terms of the story that that happened to you, its authenticity, but also how you stayed with your mission of people first, even in the midst of being able to pivot, you know, with a lot financially on the line. And that is that is pretty awesome. Right. And so I just want to say that out loud. One of the things that you mentioned a couple times and just kind of weaved it in, but you talked about the different keynote speeches that you do, um, the books that you've written, and, and uh, you did it in such a uh, smooth way. I don't want it to be lost uh, on our audience, right? So talk to me a little bit about some of the types of topics, right, that, that you feel like are in your sweet spot, right, that you share about. And then I do want you to talk about a little bit, a couple of the books that you wrote uh, in the past and why, and what the, the, the message you were trying to convey.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of those, and I thank you for that opportunity. I think a lot of them coincide, so I can probably answer them simultaneously. The first one, which doesn't have a book, so I'll start there, is uh, creating experiences worth sharing. And that is just something that I learned early on. You look at uh, the story of the Walmart smiley face sticker or the the Starbucks Frappuccino. Uh, Those were created from entry-level employees. That want to do something different for their team members. It goes back to the Fred Factor book I was talking about earlier. It's people who see take an ordinary opportunity in their career or in their job and transform that into an extraordinary opportunity. So my creating experiences, where sharing lecture, really explores what it means to, from whatever seat you're in, whether you're at a you know a Fortune 50 or you're at the mom and pop business down the road, how to take your job and take it to the next level and just make a difference for the people. And again, it goes to people that we've been talking about a lot today, but to the people that you interface with every day, whether that's your team teammates, your your bosses, uh, or, or your guests or customers. So that that's kind of one of my big lectures and topics. The, the most recent one is the cracking the millennial code. I, I would say it's been 10 years in the making, but you could say it's my lifetime in the making since I am a millennial. But it, it's this idea of, the millennials aren't actually that different than previous generations, and I think a lot of people are all of a sudden scratching their heads or, or angry at me me saying that. But there are things that every generation past has passed on to the millennial generation. So my my book talks about how every generation influences the next, and how there's this cascading impact, and how the millennials are now influencing the in the following generations, and, and so that's what that book is. And, and I speak a lot around the country on that topic and uh, the influences on millennials. So those are two of my major topics, a lot with colleges and universities, and uh, as well as some high schools, I talk about the journey of leadership and entrepreneurship, and how there are some awesome things about it. But there's also a lot of grit that goes behind it and perseverance. So that's a, an, another topic I cover.
1: i really appreciate the, the more detailed explanation there. And I think, you know, one of the things that that I'm working on these days as the founder of the diversity movement is how do Mm -hmm. we create that broad context around diversity and inclusion and race and gender and sexual orientation, right? Those are like the big three, but there's so much more, right? And one Mm -hmm. of the things that's really important is that construct of multi-generational teams because we have many, many generations now that are in the workplace together that need to learn how to interrelate, really understand one another to create a high performance team. And so I'm definitely going to, uh, to order this book, Cracking the Millennial Code and, and read on it. And I'll probably reach out maybe for a question or two, but this is a lane that applies to the very important work we're doing with diversity and inclusion uh, because generational equity, right? Generational coordination and productivity is very, very important, right? To the so growth true. of businesses.
2: So true, couldn't agree more.
1: So one of the things that you know as I reflect on our conversation and the experiences you've described, what are you wanting to do next like you've got you've got all these talents you 've got all these skills, all these things you 've done right what 's the next big thing that keeps you motivated and pushing and next leveling up uh, in your day to day work
2: that's a tough question. I, I love what i 'm doing now I- i'm loving helping these these companies and in- our, what we call our Boone Accelerator or, or our co- current cohort, these five companies that each have a different perspective on marketplace or gig economy. I love helping these founders from all different stages. Some of them are, are founders that have been in a career for 20 years and are now looking to be startup founders of some are recent grads. I love helping them look at not only how they can use software and technology, which is what we're providing to scale their businesses beyond their their local region, but really, how do they do that and simultaneously care for the people that are on their platform? And how do they care for the people on their team? So I love doing that. That is, I, I'll confess that I've always thought about what's next. And every, every opportunity I've had, it's like, this is great. How can I get it bigger and then move on to what's next? Where I am today and helping people and helping them figure out what's next has been a blast. I love it. I'm passionate about it. And it's the gift that keeps on giving to me personally. It's a very selfish uh, endeavor. But watching these companies love their people well, love the people on both sides of their marketplace well, is just a blast. So that's not not an answer to your question at all. It's a roundabout, but that's where I'm at.
1: No, it is. I mean, there's there's different um, phases, right? And so depending on when I ask you that question, right, the answer can be remotely different. But what I sense is not really different than where I am personally with the diversity movement. When you're in a moment, right, where your giftings and your blessings can be bestowed on other people in a powerful way, then you're living in that momentum, right? You're living in that zone, right, for that period of time. And so, you know, you, you answered the question, and I, I appreciate it. I'm a competitive learner, and I'm really enjoying our dialogue because you've given me – and I know it's for our audience, but, like, I'm part of the audience. I get to do this. One of the coolest things – uh, is I get the opportunity to talk to some tremendous people, tremendous thinkers and business people. And, and now I get to count you in that, that mix, right? Like, i have got two pages full of notes, right, just on what we're, what we're talking about, which is really, really awesome. When you think about our country, let's move away from entrepreneurship a little bit. Let's now talk about some of the macro events that are happening in our world. Yeah. Can you sort of the perspective from where you sit on some of the racial unjust, on how we're handling COVID? Any of the topics that you pick, but I know you've got some perspectives and some some opinions and, and I'd like to hear them
2: yeah I've got a lot of opinions um, let me boil let me start with the individual level first uh, because there there's just so much everyone's picking you know it's a, let's go to development you and I don't write code, but it's an easy reference point there's a one or a zero you're either a one or you're a zero and I think that's the fallacy that so many people, especially millennials, more than other generations have found themselves in is they pick one or zero. And I would argue that, yes, that's true in development, but when you're dealing with people, there's a million digits between one and zero. And so at an individual level, I think the most important thing is being willing to listen and being willing to listen to people that disagree with your beliefs. And I've just seen so much hatred and buildup of people that are unwilling to listen and have constructive dialogue versus argument. And I think there's a place for argument. I think there's a place for debate, absolutely. But people that are willing to listen. And you have to worry about yourself first before you can worry about what someone else believes. And if you're not willing to listen to what someone else believes, feels, is hurting, and if you're not willing to lament, understand what other people are saying, then I think you're fundamentally flawed. And I'll say that that's a I know that's a bold statement, but I, I think the people that fail to listen to others and at least engage in dialogue by listening first are, are just missing out on a huge opportunity to really change our our not only our country, but our world's trajectory.
1: Well, that's powerful and, and and forcefully said in an eloquent manner. What do you think when you look at hope for the future? Because we are so partisan, we are so separated, we are so yeah. if you're not align with my belief system 100%, you are my enemy, right? Like that. that's kind of a lot of the culture. The thing that gives me hope from my perspective and and I'm very fortunate is a lot of the leaders that I talk to, a lot of the people that I work with are trying to find a way out of that chaos, Mm -hmm. right? They're really trying to lean into how to be better, how to have that different dialogue. And so that does give me that kind of that momentum, that emotional momentum to, to keep going. When you think about, millennials specifically Mm -hmm. right how how do we change that paradigm for the next generation of leaders that are going to take our country forward how do we do it better
2: yeah i think it and it sounds cliche but i do stand behind it it's leading by example if you if you don't agree with a millennial's perspective let's just take that as an example since that's on the table listen to why their perspective is the way it is and if you listen i will almost guarantee can't promise i'm not gonna promise for other people but they will listen back because they'll be so shocked you listened doesn't mean you have to agree and i think there's a fundamental difference between listening and agreeing and and i'm not just saying that with millennials but across the board if you're not okay with someone else's perspective at least listen to it acknowledge that you heard it and feel free to debate it argue it whatever you want to do but respect it and listen to it and i think we especially millennials and i'm generalizing a little bit on behalf of my generation but we are used to a a projecting persona we have had social media we've had identities we've had blogs we've had these things where we project who we are that we aren't good listeners because if you have comments we don't like we swipe and delete them or we restrict them or we block them and again i'm generalizing and this is not the case with everyone and i just got blocked from a bunch of people saying that but and that's okay because they're not listening and, and that's their problem and they'll catch up with them later. But I, I think, again, we, if, it, it's a golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If you, want to, if you want to make a change, at least listen to someone else's perspective because you might be wrong, but you also might be right. And if you listen first, the other person might listen.
1: That's powerful. When, from an innovation standpoint, what you're saying makes sense also because a lot of times you can come at a problem And you have two points of view and what I like to call the third rail of innovation may come from that. It Mm. may not be an either or. It may be that third way of thinking that solves a problem differently or at least moves the conversation differently than either person or party understood. And I think that the the level of discourse that you're advocating is what is required for us to move from this moment in a positive way. Uh, Mm. Agreement. On some of these big issues, right? Who knows if we get there? But human decency is attainable, yeah. right? Respect of uh, one another is attainable, mm-hmm. right? And, and there's some things that I think um, our country has been allowed to become intellectually lazy because we can just get drawn into the soundbite arguments, and nobody really has to do their homework. Like for me, my soapbox is: we pay all of these politicians in in Washington to give us rhetoric on bills they haven't read or didn't write. And that is not Democrat, uh, Republican. That's just like our structural system of people that we pay a lot of money to not actually work, but to show up on news channels and yell at each other. I'd rather none of them be on the media and they have to do work. And if they don't get a certain amount of legislation passed, then they don't get paid. Like that to me, like, it's not even what they, this side of the aisle on. I actually just want them to work, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) to to try to, to try to do their, their job better. Let me give you space for, we've covered a, a lot of different things. Maybe there's an organization, a nonprofit that you believe in, you want to share about. Maybe there's one last comment that you want to share about or a book you want to promote. Give me, give me the last two or three minutes to, to have our listeners remember you by as we kind of wind down our time together.
2: I appreciate that. I, I think uh, with our conversation, I, I've really been further inspired to the idea of it's all about people. We are, we are living with other people. And yes, there are issues that people stand for and support. Yes, there are political parties that people stand for and support. But at the end of the day, uh, we've got brothers and sisters in our business that we work alongside every single day that we've got to support and love for who they are. And, and so I think in our conversation today, more than ever, goes back to Boone's mission of practicing good. It's doing the right thing by, by people, regardless of your beliefs, your, your opinions, where you're from, uh, what you look like, how you talk. It's just who you are and, and loving people for who they are. So I, I think this conversation, though that's been a passion of mine, has solidified that even more. It's, it's about just loving people.
1: Ryan, it has been my absolute pleasure to meet you. Um, I look forward to reading more, more of your stuff. I encourage people to go to Ryanvet.com or y-a-n-b-e-t.com and and get to know you a little bit better. And again, my friend, thank you very much for spending time on the Donald Thompson podcast. Your time's appreciated and uh, you're welcome back anytime, my friend.
0: Thank
1: you so much. This podcast is edited and produced by Earphones. If you're looking for more information on how full service podcast production can amplify your voice, build your community, visit earfluence.com. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson podcast.